love the word tolerance in that prayer. Don't think I've ever heard it used before, but that really says it all. God has to tolerate us or we're in bad trouble. You can see a few empty seats, and that means that the vacation period has begun. So let's uh, remind those who aren't here this morning that we miss them. We weathered Revelation. Yay! <laughs> Dr. Soka says he wants to teach it next time. <laughs> we are back in the Old Testament today, and we began with the prophet Amos. It's appropriate that we do begin with the prophet Amos because he is the earliest of all the literary prophets. That is to say, prophets prior to Amos prophesied, but there was no record kept of their prophecies. With the coming of Amos, there is a recording of the prophecies, which continue down through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the others. But Amos is the very first. If you were to choose someone to be a prophet at this particular time in history, it amazes us as to the procedure that God follows in choosing who he does. The kingdom is divided. It divided after the death of Solomon, and it became the two kingdoms of the south and the ten kingdoms of the north, separate kingdoms, Jerusalem was the center of the southern kingdom. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was there within the temple. The northern kingdom wanted to have a temple as well to keep their people from going down into the southern kingdom and worshiping at Solomon's temple. So at Bethel, which was about 10 miles into the countryside, close to the border of the southern kingdom, a temple was built for the northern kingdom. So Jerusalem was the temple of the southern kingdom. Bethel was the kingdom of the northern kingdom. The uh, king Uzziah was king of the southern kingdom. King Uzziah was the great reformer who cleansed the temple re-established temple worship and that sort of thing. And consistent with that, God went into the hill country south of Jerusalem, about 10 miles, to a little village called Tekoa. And there he found a man who tended the orchards, who shepherded the sheep, a simple man. He tended the sycamore trees, which bore a fruit similar to a fig, which was extremely bitter and inedible. But if in the ripening of the fruit, one were to pinch off the end and let the inside of the fig drain the sap of the fruit, and then let it ripen without the sap, then it would be edible. Wasn't a desirable dish, but for the poor people, they had to have something to eat. They were glad to get even that. The time in which Amos was the prophet is greatly reminiscent of the day in which we live. There were the rich and the powerful, and there were the impoverished, and there was nobody in between. And the rich and the powerful kept the impoverished in their poverty. 
and there was little opportunity for those who were born into poverty to ever rise out of poverty. And these were the circumstances at the time when Amos was called to be a prophet. Interestingly enough, Amos was a member of Judea. God called him to go to Israel, the northern kingdom, a stranger in their midst. He came into the kingdom at Bethel. The people gathered. Here was a prophet. What did the Lord have to say through the prophecy? Amos began. He named Syria and all the other nations around them who were their enemies. And he said, God says, I'm tired of the way that you are ignoring me, the way you're living, and I'm going to punish you. And the people yelled in their approval of everything that was being said. When he finished, he attacked Israel, his own country. He said, God said, I am tired of the way in which you are ignoring me, the kind of lifestyle you're living, and I'm going to punish you. And the people yell, boy, we've got us a preacher now. He knows what to say. He sees everything just the way it is. And then he said, Israel, the Lord says, I'm sick and tired of the way that you're treating me, the way that you're treating the poor people. As I came into the temple, Amos said, I saw people barefoot because they couldn't afford to buy shoes. As I listened to the conversations of the people, I learned that those indebted to the wealthy were being sold off into slavery because they could not pay off their debts. I saw the impoverished people everywhere while all of the finery walked into the temple to worship. And they've been yelling, go back from where you came. And the priest presiding in the temple approached them and drove him out of the temple. We want none of you here. You go back and preach to your own people. This was Amos's introduction into the world of prophecy. Amos disclaimed from the very beginning that he was not a prophet. Don't expect me to fulfill the role of a prophet. I'm not even a son of a prophet. I am a simple man that God called out of the wilderness to come to tell the people, you have your temple, you come and you worship, trampling over the impoverished, the poor, while you come to do so. And God found that intolerable. We tend to say in the church, the role of the church is to save souls and stay out of social situations. Leave that to the government and to others. John Wesley possibly was, if not the greatest, one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived. A brilliant man, graduate of Oxford University, a teacher at Oxford University, Lincoln College, one whose father and grandfathers were all Anglican churchmen, brilliant in every sense of the word. He was unhappy with his faith. He was unhappy with his church. Not only was the church not enthusiastic about religion, it was ignoring the plight of the people, people living in poverty, people having no chance for an education, and the church totally ignoring them, going on their way. And so much of the clergy was corrupt themselves. This was the church of which John Wesley was a part. He 
had a heartwarming experience and he became sensitive of the mind of God. One of the books that John Wesley was most motivated by was Thomas Kempis, An Imitation of Christ. He wanted to imitate Christ in his own life and he discovered that Christ did more than preach. He tried to help people. He was compassionate. He cared for people. John Wesley, when he died, left thousands of converts, thousands of people who were introduced to God through him. Scores of churches that were established to carry on the work that had been begun through his converts. In spite of the fact that he was that kind of a churchman, that he was that kind of an evangelist, one of the first things that he did after he had his heartwarming experience was to establish an orphanage. He was aware of the children of the city who had no homes, who were living in the streets, and he established an orphanage to take care of the children. The Industrial Revolution had come, and with the coming of the Industrial Revolution, those who owned industries discovered that they could hire children much cheaper than they could adults. And so these workplaces were filled with child labor, abusing them and paying them very little, taking away their childhood. John Wesley fought to do away with child labor to prevent children's childhoods being taken away from them for the sake of cheap labor. He knew that if one betters oneself, it has to be through education. He established a school, Kingswood School, where people who could not get an education anywhere else could come and find education. New doctors among us. John Wesley was a doctor. He was a physician. John Wesley was equal to most doctors of his day because there was not a profession in which they excelled in the sciences. Most of them were self-taught or were taught by others. John Wesley wrote a book, a health book, which was on the bestseller list, a book of medicine. And in it, he has a recipe for baldness. <laughs> I tried it. <laughs> Not really. But if you go to Wesley House in London, you'll find a generator on a table there. John Wesley used to generate electricity because he saw the value of electricity in the treatment of people's nerves that developed into psychiatry later on. But he was one of the originators to know that that electrical impulses could have an effect upon a person's uh, nervous system. John Wesley opened the first public free medical clinic. John Wesley didn't just want to save souls. He wanted to make life better for people while they lived on earth. And it's a great life here on earth. I want to go to heaven, but I want to stay here just as long as I can because heaven's going to be mighty good to beat this one. And John Wesley knew that, and he couldn't see people imprisoned in this life with the only security in this life coming with death so that they could escape the kind of lives that they were having to live. So John Wesley set the precedent 
that not only do you bring people to God, but you use your love for people, your compassion for people to make life better for them. Our lesson writer today said that Ed Koch, when he was mayor of New York, made the statement that if every church were to adopt 10 families in America, there'd be no need for public welfare. The government wouldn't need to do anything that everybody would have their needs met if only every church in America were to adopt 10 families and provide for their needs. Ronald Reagan was quoted in this same context as saying, if every church in America were to adopt 10 families, there would be no need for any kind of governmental assistance. There would be no need for welfare. Our lesson writer went on to quote an Episcopal bishop in New York as having computed what they had said. And his computation was that if a, channel, if a family were to live just on the outer edge of poverty, back in the days when these statements were made, it would cost at least $10,000 to pay the rent, the utilities, the food, just the basic needs, which every church taking 10 families would have $100,000 a year going out to take care of these families, note, taking note of the fact that there are many churches in America that don't even have a budget of $100,000 to pay a salary for a minister, to keep up a church or anything else. It's idealistic to think that the church can do it. The church can improvise, they can innovate, and they can motivate to get the things done that the church can't do itself. Munsey is a great church. When I served First Church, I looked over here and said, boy, we're a lot better than they are. <laughs> no. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Nick Lynn and I were close friends. And when I was appointed to First Church, he said, this is exciting. You and I can do some great things for Johnson City. And we did. We had a great really working relationship. I'm excited to be a part of a church like Munsey that has an outreach that touches every group that we know about in need. My son has a summer job with the Samaritan House, uh, helping assist in the way in which Munsey is assisting financially. We have a great outreach. We're sending money to Brazil. Did you see that article in uh, the call last week? The conference newspaper? Don't you get the conference newspaper? Shame on you. Those of you who, did you notice an article on the front page? Written by Joy Eastridge? <laughs> who grew up in Brazil. Her first 14 years of her life, was her parents were Baptist missionaries to Brazil. And because Brazil is the object of our offerings this year at annual conference, they had her to write a, an article. She talked about the poverty of Brazil. She said, unlike America, where if you're born in poverty, with education, with opportunities, you can go anywhere you want to. But in Brazil, if you're born in poverty, you die in poverty because you're not permitted to climb out of your poverty. And having experienced it firsthand, she painted a, a sad picture of all of that. Well, we're trying to make a difference in Brazil. 
And so the place is the church. We can't do the job, but we can motivate and we can get others to do. I serve a community church of about 12,000 people. And we were the major church in town. And the uh, bank president was one of our wealthiest members. And he griped all the time because our church was paying connectional askings, which we could use in the local church if we didn't have to send it out. He said to a district superintendent at one of our church conferences, you find me a Methodist church that refuses to pay its apportionments and I'll join it. What's a church for? If you're going in and pat yourself on the back, taking care of your needs, ignoring the needs of others around you, that's not Methodism. The Methodist church was the first church in America to adopt the social creed, pointing out the places in which the people's lives need to be nurtured and ministered to, not only by the church, but by all other agencies that are positioned to do that. Harold Bales is a good friend of mine, and some of you may know Harold Bales because he was associate pastor at First Broad in Kingsport for a while. He was in charge of the church's presence at the World's Fair in Knoxville, and when the fair closed, he went to First Broad as associate until an appointment could be made for him, and he was appointed to First Church Charlotte. First Church Charlotte was one of the great churches of the South. Some of the greatest preachers of the South were pastors at First Church Charlotte. It was the showplace of the South. First Church Charlotte, First Church Birmingham were the two without peers in the South. But both churches now have become victims of the inner city. Both of them are struggling to stay alive. Fortunately enough, First Church Charlotte has enough endowment that they continue to carry on their pastoral ministry, keep up their magnificent buildings and the like, but nobody came because people had moved to the suburbs and were joining churches there. Harold Bales was sent there to build up an inner city program, such as Muncie has done here, except to a greater extent there. Soup kitchens for the homeless. Uh, training groups for those who needed to better themselves, uh, providing places to sleep for the homeless, all of the many things that are being done in inner city churches. And this was back when it was just beginning. Some of the people still lived in their mansions downtown, loved the church that they had been a member of all their lives. They didn't want to see it change. They wanted to still see the high worship and the people coming in with their furs and driving in with their Cadillacs that wasn't happening. The people were going elsewhere. One day, Harold was accosted by one of the elderly women of the church who had been a member there for all of her life, wearing her furs, came up and taking a superior stance. She said, I don't like what you're doing to our church. You're destroying everything that this church has stood for. We're seeing people that we look down upon coming in and taking our places in the pews. Don't like you and what you're doing to my church. Harold said, the church is here to save souls in the name of Christ. And she said, let them go somewhere else to get their souls saved. <laughs> and Harold said, I wasn't talking about them. 
<laughs> the church stands at a position today where it can make a difference in society because we read all the time of the widening between the haves and the have-nots because of the economic conditions that are prevalent in our society today. The answer is education. Paul, excuse me, I couldn't go to college today. Why not that either? <laughs> it's magnificent what these colleges are doing to make it possible. But poor families, Thank goodness for the community colleges, for those who otherwise would never be able to go to college. You've got to educate the people if they're to develop skills, if they're to develop the dreams in order to make it a better society. Education is the very beginning of changing our society and making it better. John Wesley discovered it, Kingswood School. John Wesley opened medical practice for people who could not pay for their medical care. That's one of the biggest political problems facing America today is medical care. I was in the drugstore one day waiting for my uh, medicine to be handed me, which thankfully enough my church made provision for in my uh, medication, in my medical insurance. And I had to pay very little, but this poor lady had a bill for over $200 and she didn't even have insurance. And I know she didn't go buy bread, buy bread and milk. She might have bought dog food because she wasn't in a position to spend that little bit of money that she had except to stay alive. We've got to do something about that. And the church needs to take the leadership in it. Not providing it, we're not able to do that. We don't have the resources, but we can motivate those who are in a position to do so to make certain that we take care of the people who live in our country and give them a chance to live and to live on a level that Amos talked about so many centuries ago. It's the same story that has been relived in every generation. We have inherited it, and we have a chance to change it. Church, hey, that, I can't look at that clock. May, may I talk with this clock? I'll make, I'll make one other statement. Second church in Knoxville is a downtown church in the Mill District. When I was associate pastor at Church Street, it was the second largest in membership in town. But it has become inner city, and it has always been a church for the Mill people who were employed at the lowest economic level. They have a big red neon cross in their steeple. It's called the Red Cross Church. It was called the Red Cross Church because during the time of the Great Depression, not one member of Second Methodist Church took one dime of welfare. The church took care of its own. The people came together and met the needs of their fellow members. And not one family in that church had to depend on the government for welfare. That's what can happen when a church comes alive. Moses alive. I'm preaching to the choir here because there's a, a sense in this congregation of the needs of people that is just heartwarming in every sense of the word. Aren't you glad we're out of Revelation? <laughs> <laughs> Any comments or questions? We need to get locked in. Wake them up. <laughs>
there. I haven't called you yet. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Maybe that, maybe that uh, point you were making about the banker in your church, like the story they tell about the church, and they called on one of the members of the congregation to have the prayer. He stood up and said, Lord, bless me and my wife, our son and his wife, that's four no more. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to tell this. I, has, I was prepared to and ran out of time, as you know. But I do want to just end on this one thing. Uh, Ken Carter, who later became a bishop and is occupying one of the major chairs of theology at Duke University by announcement in the paper that nobody read, <laughs> uh, was pastor at Church Street Church, and that's the church out of which I came into the ministry. But it's a downtown church, rich beyond means. It's the, uh, the one church at Wholesome Conference that just stands alone. It dates all the way back to Princess Asbury. And it's the flagship church of Wholesome Conference. Uh, the wealthiest people in Knoxville attend Church Street. The political uh, leaders of Knoxville attend Church Street, if they're Methodist, of course. and. Uh, you, you just saw wealth all around you. But it became an inner city church. People, because it was a university church, people continued to come, though. Had great leadership. Bill Fowler's pastor there, and in my estimation, he didn't have a peer in a wholesome conference in preaching. But uh, he, Ken, is a native of Johnson City, and didn't come out of the wealthiest of backgrounds. Always was sensitive to the need of the poor people. I first met Ken when he took his first church in Wholesome Conference, and he was fighting for assistance to the prisons, churches helping with the prisons. He never lost that sense. When he came to Church Street, there were homeless people all over the city, and so uh, he had one of the staff members designated as minister to the homeless, going out and trying to bring them into the church. They set up soup kitchens. I had a conference meeting there, and we usually go out and eat in one of the fine restaurants, and they herded us into the soup kitchen, and we ate with the homeless people, and I thought that was a great expression of the church. But anyway, on one Sunday morning, after everybody had left, the minister walked in, and here's one of the ushers talking to a homeless man. He didn't have any shoes on. He had rags tied around his feet. And he said it was in the middle of the winter, and he said that someone stole his shoes, but he didn't want to miss church, so he tied rags around his feet to come. Well, the usher called over another man, and they were standing there talking, well, what can we do? What can we do? There was one other homeless man waiting for this one. He walked over, and he said, I've got an extra pair. You can have mine. And he took off his shoes and gave it to the other one. And he had another pair of shoes back where he called home. Ken Carter told that at Emory University at a symposium in which he was participating. And the newspaper said that there wasn't a dry eye on that podium when they saw the unselfishness of a homeless man inside of the wealthiest church in the conference giving his shoes to another. Now you can have it. <laughs> <laughs>